Okay, it's great to see everybody, and uh, I know we've got some folks uh, coming as well, and so let's, uh, let's go ahead and pray, and then we will jump in, okay? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your love and grace, and Lord, we thank you for these three evenings that we have, uh, starting tonight and then for the next couple of weeks to get together and to think about uh, family, to think about parenting and children and how we can be faithful to you and to the gospel. And uh, Father, we pray that you'd help us during these times. We pray, Father, that by your Spirit, uh, you'd give us clarity and wisdom, that you'd lead us and guide us into truth. We pray that as a result, our families would be more healthy and uh, that they would be a reflection of your word. And it's through Christ we pray. Amen. Okay, well, um, yeah, really excited to start this series and for us to be able to meet over the next uh, several weeks and talk about some really important things uh, as it relates to family and raising children and uh, that sort of thing. So uh, just want to start by acknowledging that the Lord has really blessed our church uh, with families, with children, and uh, we praise God for that. I think uh, recently, even over the last uh, few months, we recognized, I think we had 13 uh, women that were pregnant at the same time. Uh, so the Lord's just really blessed our family, or our church with families and uh, with children, and we are so thankful for that. Uh, we also recognize it's not only just families who are members here that are being uh, blessed with children, but also uh, we're having an increasing number of children come in from the neighborhoods uh, as well. And so we're really grateful for that and uh, for their presence here. And we need to think about how can we faithfully minister to them and care for their souls. And uh, so this is a great blessing and it's also a great responsibility. And so uh, we're going to spend these next three weeks thinking about uh, the topic of raising children who bear spiritual fruit. And I imagine you've seen the inserts in the bulletin and uh, seen it, uh, us advertising this. So tonight we're going to talk about childhood conversion and the ordinances. Uh, next week we'll talk about navigating family worship. And then finally we'll talk about the tech-wise family. So those are the three topics we're going to try to tackle. Let me just say that as we do these talks, uh, I'm going to be uh, presenting uh, Don and Chad, also will be presenting at different times, both Don and Chad serve as elders here at our church. And uh, just want to say that we are all parents, uh, we're all pastors, uh, we are not experts in the sense that we've got this all figured out. And uh, so we just want to say that up front. Uh, in many ways, uh, if you're here tonight and you're already a parent, we would say that uh, we're in the trenches with you. Uh, we're looking to the scriptures. Uh, we're trying to be faithful with our children. Uh, and we're praying for God's grace and mercy to cover it all. And so, uh, so we're learning and we're growing as well as we're walking through uh, this calling to parent uh, as God would have us to. Tonight we start with uh, childhood conversion and the ordinances because our greatest desire as Christian parents is to see that our children would come to trust in Christ, that they would turn from their sins and believe in Jesus, that they would receive God's free gift of salvation, and then that they would grow in Christian maturity. Um, and, so, uh, and so that's why we're starting with this topic tonight, childhood conversion and the ordinances. I, th I think we can all say that there's nothing more that we would desire for our children than that they would come to know Christ and follow him. Uh, so let's kind of define some terms just as we get started. Uh, first of all, I want to define the term conversion. What is conversion? Okay. So when we talk about conversion, we're talking about the fact that God converts or he changes the heart. 
Uh, the Bible teaches us that when someone becomes a Christian, uh, God grants them spiritual life. So previously, there was only spiritual death. And when we think about spiritual death in a person's life, we think about things like there's an indifference to God, there's an outright rebellion to God's commands and ways. Uh, that's, that's the way spiritual death is, is uh, described in the Bible. But what happens in Christian conversion is that God grants one spiritual life. And when He can, uh, grants one spiritual life, a number of things happen. Uh, one is that there's a, there's a new uh, sense of conviction, conviction of sin. Um, there's, uh, at, at that point, one sees that they need a Savior. And there's also uh, the evidence of repentance in their life. They begin to turn from their sins. They place their faith in Jesus. And now they possess a new desire to love and obey God. And so this is what happens in Christian conversion. Um, where there's previously spiritual death, God grants spiritual life, and that results in faith in Christ and a changed life, which is marked by obedience, a desire to follow Christ. Now, as, as Christian parents, we, we long that for our children that this would happen in their own lives, and I think our desire is that, that we would pray that our, our children, as they look back over their lives, that they could not remember a time where they didn't love and trust and follow Jesus. That as, as, as the first time that they have the ability to understand and comprehend the gospel, that they would trust in Christ and follow Jesus. Of course, that doesn't always happen, but that's our desire. That's our hope. That's what we can pray for. So that's conversion. That's what we mean by conversion. Now, what do we mean when we talk about the ordinances, okay? So childhood conversion and the ordinances. When we speak of the ordinances, we're referring to baptism and the Lord's Supper, two ceremonies that Jesus commanded his church to practice. And we call them ordinances because Christ ordained these practices for the church. That's where ordinances come from. Christ ordained these practices for us as Christians, and historically, this is important to understand, historically Christians have understood the ordinances to be markers that identify the church, okay? So on the one hand, we have baptism. Baptism identifies one as a Christian and marks them off as a member of Christ's church. So that's, that's what's happening when one's baptized. They're professing their faith in Jesus, so they're being identified with Jesus. And it's done publicly before the church, and so they're also identifying themselves with the church, with the people of God. You know, Paul talks about the fact, he writes to the church, he says, we share one baptism, okay? So, so, so in sharing that baptism, we are identified with one another, and we're identified with Christ. We could say this is an initiating rite. It's, a, it's the front door into the local church. Then you have the Lord's Supper. This is the other ordinance. And the Lord's Supper, whereas baptism is only practiced once upon profession of faith in Jesus, the Lord's Supper is a reoccurring ordinance that continues to testify to one's profession of faith in Jesus and their identity with the church. So when we take the bread and when we take the cup, at our baptism we profess our faith in Jesus and we identified ourselves with the church. And when we take the bread and when we take the cup, we are again identifying ourselves with Christ 
and with his church. Uh, That's one of the reasons why we take the supper together. We're doing it together because we're identifying not only with Jesus, but with one another. We don't just do it by ourselves at home, right? And so in doing this, we continue to reaffirm that Jesus is our only hope of salvation and that we are believing in him and we are believing in him together as fellow Christians. And so in this way, the ordinances identify the church. They mark off who the church is. Now, as Baptists, um, we do not practice infant baptism, okay? So there are denominations or churches that will baptize infants. We do not practice infant baptism. We practice believer's baptism because we believe that baptism is reserved for those who have repented of their sins and trusted in Christ. It's, it's reserved for believers. So very practically speaking, sometimes the question will come up, if we don't baptize our children as infants, at what age should we baptize our children? And somebody might respond and say, well, that's easy. We should baptize our children when they come to faith in Jesus. And that's true. But understandably, oftentimes parents will press a little bit further and say, well, how can I discern whether or not they have come to faith in Jesus? And that's really becomes the question then. And that's what I want us to focus on uh, this evening. I want us to think about this relationship between childhood conversion, when a child comes to faith in Christ, and the ordinances. And in particular, we're going to spend most of our time talking about baptism. When then should a child be baptized? Because if you get baptism settled, then the Lord's Supper kind of takes care of itself. Okay? Because the church, and I think this is right, the church, broadly speaking, has, has historically accepted that baptism precedes the Lord's Supper, that the rightful baptized Christians, let me say it this way, baptized Christians are the rightful recipients of the Lord's Supper. So first one is baptized, they're identified with Christ and with his church, and then as a result, they begin to take the Lord's Supper. And that, that profession continues by taking the Lord's Supper to be made. Um, as they continue to identify themselves with Christ and with his church. Okay, so among Baptists, as we think about this question, so when should a child be baptized? Among Baptists, there's been two schools of thought. Very simply stated, there's one school of thought that would say, we should baptize quickly. And then there's another school of thought that would say, we should wait a while. Okay? So if we think about those who would take the position that we should baptize quickly, basically what they're saying is that we should act more or less immediately upon a child's profession of faith in Jesus. We should immediately baptize them, and they should become a member of the church at that point. For those who say that we should wait a while, the position here is that it's best to wait a while and to encourage a child to continue to grow in their understanding of the gospel and in their love for Jesus until it's clearer that his or her profession of faith is genuine, that it's personal, and that it is discernible, that it's a credible profession of faith, and that we can discern that. Now, um, I want us, as we think about this question, whether baptize quickly or act quickly or wait a while, I want us to think about this from a couple different vantage points, okay? And so I'm going to walk through these. We're going to do a biblical consideration, 
and historical consideration, and then pastoral application. And then I'm going to open it up for questions, okay? And uh, y'all can ask questions, and we can have some discussion. And then actually, as you leave this evening, we have a position paper that we're going to give you. And so uh, you'll have that as well. And uh, you can read it, and then uh, if you have questions that come from that as well, uh, please let us know. Okay, so first of all, biblical consideration. Um, We do not believe that the Scriptures clearly teach that we should either baptize quickly or wait a while when it comes to childhood conversion. Okay? So one of the things we just have to acknowledge up front is there's not really, if we look in the Scriptures, there's not a situation where you have, say, believing parents and they've... um, They've been Christians for a really long time, and then they have a child, and the child's growing up, and the child comes to faith in Christ, and they have to make this decision, do we baptize quickly or do we wait a while? Because um, the Bible was written in first century AD as people were coming to faith for the first time. We have um, adults coming to faith and that sort of thing, and so that's what we're seeing in the New Testament in terms of baptism. And so um, it doesn't mean, though, that the Bible has nothing to say about this. I think rather what we see is that the Bible has principles uh, that are laid out, that then we, need, we have to take those principles and with wisdom, and there's any number of situations like this in life, we have to, with wisdom, try to apply those principles as best we can. And we recognize that as a church, our responsibility is not simply to determine when someone has made a profession of faith in Jesus. So people make professions of faith in Jesus, right? So our, our, our responsibility as a church is not to determine when someone makes a profession of faith in Jesus. Our responsibility is rather to determine when someone has made a credible profession of faith in Jesus. When I say credible, I just mean, is it legitimate? Is it genuine? Is it authentic? Does it meet the standard of New Testament Christianity? Um, Is it accompanied by some evidence of repentance and genuine love for Christ and a desire to follow him? This is, by the way, one of the reasons why we do membership interviews here at Crawford Avenue, because we believe this is so important in terms of caring for people's souls, also caring for the church as a whole, that when people come to become a member of the church, that we just not say immediately, okay, you're a member, but we take some time to understand, do they have a right understanding of the gospel? Do they understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus? So if that's the case, if we're looking for credible professions of faith, According to the scriptures, what are some of the evidences that we should look for to determine whether or not a profession of faith in Jesus is genuine? Now, we've been talking about this a lot on Sunday mornings in 1 John, okay? And if you've been here on Sunday mornings, you remember that the tests that John gives us are the test of obedience and love and doctrine, okay? Now, I'm going to present something here. It's actually three things, but it's a little bit different, just coming at it from a bit of a different vantage point. Uh, but I think really helpful and, and, uh, and, and is a reflection of, as well of much of what we've seen in 1 John. But the three points here, and I'll explain each one, are conviction, revelation, and regeneration. Conviction, revelation, and regeneration. So first of all, conviction. We're looking for a credible profession of faith in Christ. Is there the convicting work of the Holy Spirit in this person's life? Um, does God's law and God's commands bring uh, work in such a way in this person's life that they are aware of their sin and the necessity of trusting in Christ. Okay, As we think about this as it relates to our children, here's some helpful questions that we might consider. Does your child demonstrate sorrow and remorse about his or her sin? Does your child recognize that he has sinned against God and not just against others? Does your child confess 
her sins to God and ask for his mercy without your prompting? Does your child demonstrate commitment to Christ in the midst of strong temptation to obey? Those are some kind of diagnostic questions you might want to ask as you're thinking about, is my child, has he or she experienced genuine conviction of sin that only the Holy Spirit can bring? Second evidence would be revelation. So first, conviction. Second is revelation. Revelation is a work of the Holy Spirit by which God reveals to people the truth of his word and an understanding of Christ in the gospel. Okay? So he reveals to them. He opens their eyes. He opens their he- ears so that the gospel is not just ideas or facts, or, but they understand it. They, they see it for what it is. Um, by the way, as you read the paper, there's passages of Scripture here referencing each of these. We're not going to have time to go into each one, but um, I think you'll clearly see that these are biblical concepts. So some diagnostic questions here to ask is, does your child understand that she is a sinner and cannot save herself? Does your child understand that his sins deserve death and punishment in hell? Does your child understand that Jesus died as a substitute for his sins? Does your child understand that she is saved only by God's grace and not because of any good within herself? Does your child demonstrate an understanding of the scriptures when they are taught, or is your child confused by the scriptures? Now, let me clarify on that last point. It's not that you know, your child becomes a biblical scholar, but it's just even as you think about the very basics of the gospel, like who God is and what sin is and why Jesus died and rose again and what it means to repent and believe. Are they just, are, they, are those ideas confusing to them? Can they not really articulate that? Or are they having an increasing understanding of those things so that it's changing them? The third evidence is this, regeneration, regeneration. Again, regeneration is a work of the Holy Spirit who gives life to a dead soul and produces a credible profession of repentance and faith. So regeneration is the idea of new life. Um, here's some diagnostic questions. Does your child demonstrate a genuine interest in spiritual things? Does your child pray or read the scripture on their own initiative? What sins have your children repented of? Does your child desire to talk with you about the scriptures? How does your child demonstrate that he trusts in Christ? Does your child demonstrate a genuine desire to tell others about Jesus? Now, of course, our children are not going to be perfect, like we are not perfect. They're going to struggle in various ways. But there should, be some, there should be evidences. There should be fruit of God's work in their life if they've genuinely been converted. Now, of course, we can't ultimately see the heart. We can never perfectly discern the condition of everyone's heart. But we do have a responsibility, and especially to our children, to discern these evidences as best we can for their sake Uh, for the sake of the church, and for the sake of our gospel witness. (coughs) Excuse me. So that's first, biblical considerations. Now secondly, and I hope you'll find this interesting, if someone could grab me a water, that would be outstanding. I'm sorry, I don't know what my throat, thank you Clark, is doing right now. The second is uh, historical consideration. I think this is really interesting. So, As we think about this as Baptists, the idea that one should be baptized upon their profession of faith is is 
accepted among all Baptists, okay? But there is some disagreement over when we can best discern whether or not a profession of faith is credible, and this is particular true as it relates to children. Now, as, as we think about this historically, this hasn't really, thank you, I appreciate it, always been the case. Until recently in modern history, most Baptists seem to believe that a credible profession of faith required a degree of maturity. So, in, in other words, they waited a while. Okay, Now, there were Baptists, and we're speaking historically now, who would baptize younger children. I'll give you an example, okay? So Charles Spurgeon, who's a great hero of mine, is a Baptist preacher in uh, London in the 19th century. His sermons were, are still read all over the world today. He, would, he was a great evangelist, and he would regularly call uh, for children to turn from their sins and to trust in Christ and to be baptized. Uh, actually, in a sermon that he preached entitled High Doctrine and Broad Doctrine, Spurgeon said this, quote, Do not think that you have to wait till you are grown up before you may come to Jesus. We have baptized quite a number of boys and girls of 10, 11, and 12. I spoke the other day with a little boy nine years of age, and I tell you that he knew more about Christ than many gray-headed men do. And he loved Jesus most heartily. Okay? So here's Spurgeon preaching, and he says that, uh, that at their church, that they had baptized a number of children that were 10, 11, 12. Even uh, he would consider baptizing this nine-year-old who seemed to possess a mature understanding of the faith. Spurgeon himself was baptized at the age of 15. Um, and he had two sons, uh, and he did not ha- they were not baptized until they were 18. So generally speaking, the practice of delaying baptism until, and this is, this is really interesting, I think this is shocking to a lot of people uh, today who've not maybe studied this or been aware of this before, the, the general practice among Baptists historically was to wait until children were in their late teens or early 20s before they were baptized. Uh, In fact, the baptism of children and young adolescents was rarely practiced. And so many Baptists actually thought that Spurgeon baptizing children at the age of 12 or 11 or 10 or even in an unusual situation, 9, was too broad and too loose. But of course, Spurgeon's practice of baptizing children at 10 or 11 or 12, according to many kind of modern-day practices, seems now to us kind of restrictive or maybe ultra-conservative. And so you can see how the pendulum has swung uh, dramatically. An historian, uh, his name is John Hammett. He's a professor at the Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, He writes on this. He says this. Listen to this. He says, quote, Over the years, the average age for baptism among Baptists in North America has steadily declined. Prior to 1966, Southern Baptists did not even keep statistics on a number of preschoolers baptized. But the denominational statisticians apparently became aware by then that it was a growing trend. Over the next 23 years, they saw the number of preschool baptisms triple It is hard to see how these preschool children could have convinced earlier Baptists that they were in fact regenerate, that means born again, 
or competent to take on the duties and responsibilities of church membership. So if we think about this even more recently, between 1977 and 1997, there was a 250% increase in the number of baptisms of children under the age of six in Southern Baptist churches. This is our four-year-olds, five-year-olds, six-year-olds. And here's the thing that's concerning. Further research seems to indicate that an enormous number of these early baptisms later proved to be illegitimate. So, a 1993 study was done that found that 60% of adult baptisms in Southern Baptist churches were rebaptisms, of which more than half of those baptisms acknowledged that when they were baptized previously, they were not Christians. Okay? I will say this as a pastor. Now, now I want to, and I just want to reiterate this over and over again. I don't want there to be any question about this. I believe that children can become Christians at a very, very young age. Four, five, six. Like, I mean, I believe God can save children at a very young age. I think what's difficult, though, is discerning um, whether that profession is genuine or not at that age. And so... It's not to say by any means that children, that all children who are baptized very young, that they then, you know, later discern that it wasn't real. I think there are situations where people are, you know, children are that young, genuinely converted and baptized, and they grow in their faith and mature into uh, wonderful Christians. But I will say as a pastor over the years, even as I've done membership interviews over the years, um, it, is, it is alarming how many people uh, do membership interviews with them and they say, I was baptized when I was six or seven or eight or nine or whenever it was, but after that there was no fruit in my life. I know I wasn't a Christian. And then really when I became a Christian was, and then fill in the blank. Um, And so I do think it's something that we need to give special care and attention to. Um. Another interesting thing about this is that these trends of baptisms being practiced at an earlier and earlier age is not just more of a modern phenomenon, like it seems to start in like the 60s, 70s, and then increases as we get into the 80s and 90s and so forth. So it's not even more of a modern phenomenon, but it also seems to be particularly an American phenomenon, and in particular, a Southern American phenomenon. So... If you talk to English Baptists, for example, English Baptists have noted that Baptists in America, particularly Southern Baptists, tend to approve of baptizing people at a much younger age than Baptists in England. Similarly, in other parts of the world, uh, reports have shown that while there is generally no written rule, few would think of asking for baptism prior to the age of 14. I remember one of the first times I encountered this, I took a mission trip to the Ukraine, and we were ministering at a Baptist church there, and the, the pastor's son was 16 years old, and he, was, uh, he had professed faith in Christ for many years, and he was coming before the church at 16 to seek to be baptized. Um, and so that just, that, that was odd to me at that time. And, uh, but that, I think, is more common Uh, around the world in terms of Baptists and how they practice baptism as it relates to children. Much more common. 
Mark Dever, who's the pastor at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., he offers this warning. Christians today should be careful about participating in well-intended but ill-fated baptisms that seem to have tragically resulted in the confirmation of millions of people in conversions that have evidently proved to be false. So-called Christians are deceived. Churches are diminished in their power, and the witness of the gospel is confused and weakened. So as we look at the historical trends, we see that it was much more common for Baptists throughout history and around the world to wait until there was discernible, credible evidence of a child's profession of faith before baptizing. They did this in interest of the person's soul, particular child, in interest of the purity of the gospel and the witness of the church. Um, So that's uh, from an historical perspective. So we looked at from a biblical consideration or perspective, then from a historical consideration or perspective. And then next, I want to talk just a little bit about pastoral application, and then we'll open it up for questions. So one of the things even that, uh, I mean, we, we just know this instinctively by experience, but psychologists have confirmed uh, over the years and, and scientists as they've studied the development of children's brains and so forth is that as children grow, as they get older, they also grow in their self-awareness, they grow in abstract thinking, they grow in their ability to make independent decisions, uh, and this, this increases dramatically over a, a child's uh, growth span or maturation process. Um, and the fact is that as we think about children, the younger a child is, the more their values and their identity and their beliefs are tightly interwoven together with their parents' beliefs and identity and values. And let me say, this is a good thing. Like, that's the way it should be. This is not bad. We should never chastise a child for that. Uh, that's just a natural way that God has uh, made children and the relationship between parents and children. And therefore, a younger child will likely have a hard time distinguishing between their love for and obedience to Jesus from their love for and obedience to their parents. Um, It has to be a difficult thing to do. So if we were to think, and I think this illustration is helpful, if we were to think of a young child's heart as a flower bud, right, that was tightly closed, the child uh, loves Jesus and the child loves his parents too. And at a young age, in fact, it's probably very difficult to discern, does the child love Jesus because of his parents? Um, Probably so. And the child probably obeys his parents because of his or her love for Jesus. But the two are so interwoven that it's difficult to make a distinction between the two. They seem almost inseparable. And again, this is right and good. The problem is in discerning this profession of faith, if it's credible or not, to see whether or not a child's profession of faith in Christ is really a profession out of love for Jesus or if it's something else. And in order to discern that, in some ways we have to push and prod. We have to ask questions like, you know, and, and, and seek to discern, are you... Are you willing to follow Jesus over family? Are you willing to follow Jesus over friends? Are you willing to follow Jesus over acceptance? And those are difficult things, one, for us to discern, and I think extremely difficult things in 
terms of a child trying to to reason that out and think about the implications of that and the significance of that. In fact, I think we could risk prodding a little bit too much, trying to distinguish that too early, Um, trying to peel back, if you want to go back to that idea of it's a It's a flower bud and the petals are tightly interwoven. In some ways, trying to pull those petals apart uh, before they're ready. And so I think the more healthy thing to do is to affirm what's there and encourage that, um, but then to allow them to grow into their faith and that natural separation will begin to take place. Typically, this happens, or at least begins to happen, when a child's in their early adolescence. We might say 12 or 13. It's not going to be the same for every child. It may be older than that, 14, 15, 16. But they begin, a child naturally begins to even question some of their childhood beliefs. And they begin to adopt their own values. They become more self-aware. They become more able to do critical thinking they become able to make more significant decisions and understand the implications of those decisions as they look out into the future of their lives. And as they do that, and in particular it's around that age that they begin to feel more of the pressure of, you could say, the world, the flesh, and the devil. They have real decisions, forks in the road, where am I going to follow my peers or am I going to follow Jesus? As they begin to make those decisions, I think it becomes much easier to distinguish whether the profession they are making is genuine, sincere, and will sustain itself. So, um, I would suggest that it is wise to not try to pull those petals apart before, um, before it would be appropriate or Uh, healthy, but rather to allow it to mature. And as it matures, it will become much more easy to discern what's taking place. To that end, uh, we'd like to make as elders a few recommendations in terms of how to think about these things and how to walk your children maybe through these things. Uh, So as elders at Crawford Avenue, and this is really what we've practiced here for years, um, even going back to Berea, Uh, We haven't kind of officially um, encapsulated it like this and presented it, but it's really what we've practiced for years. Uh, We would encourage parents that they wait until early adolescence, say 12 to 14 years of age, before encouraging their children to request baptism and church membership. Now, we want to be clear about this. Uh, We, again, are not saying that children can't be converted before that. We believe wholeheartedly that children can be genuinely converted at an earlier age. And we also want to say that this is recommendation. It's not a mandate. If you would like us to speak with your children or interview them for membership prior to that and for baptism, we'd be willing to do that. Uh, And we will take it on a case-by-case basis. However, since the goal of a membership interview is to determine as best as possible the credibility of a child's profession of faith, we simply don't expect those conversations, if it's before that, uh, to be as clear or fruitful as they would be at a later age. 
The second thing we'd say is we encourage parents to actively instruct their children in the facts of the gospel, what the gospel is, the truths of the gospel, while prayerfully, patiently, and diligently seeking to identify the fruit of the gospel in their children's lives. And those things that we talked about before, conviction of sin, repentance, understanding faith, uh, new life in Christ. When a child uh, begins to kind of come of age and professes faith in Christ and they want to inquire for baptism and church membership, we will joyfully uh, meet with them and with their parents and uh, in particular want to talk to the parents about what do you observe in your child's life. You know your parents, you know your children much better than we do and we want to hear from you. Um, And then we would meet with the child and uh, in an interview uh, we would seek to discern as best we can if the child understands the gospel and is personally embraced Christ and is following him. If the elders are convinced that a child has given evidence of genuine conversion, then the child will be baptized and accepted into the fellowship and discipline of the church and in all, into all the rights and privileges uh, of church membership. Okay? I do want to open it up for questions and ant, uh, for y'all to ask questions, and I'll, I'll try to uh, answer those questions that you have. Uh, but a natural question might be, someone might have is, well, you know, what, what do we do as well, just if, if our child makes a profession of faith in Christ, is saying that they're trusting in Jesus, what do we do? But say they're, they're very young. Um, well, a few things that, that I would say. Uh, one is continue to share the gospel with them. Uh, teach them the scriptures. We're going to have a whole, and I would encourage you to come back for this, we're going to have a whole lesson on family worship. Uh, next week, which I think is really vital and critical to our children's spiritual development. Um, so share the gospel with them, teach them the scriptures, model the Christian life before them, and pray for them. Uh, if they show interest in Christ, if they profess faith in Christ, encourage them. We don't want to discourage them in any way. Um, if they ask about baptism, then my suggestion would be, our recommendation would be, to encourage them to continue to trust in Christ to encourage them to continue to grow in their knowledge of Jesus and love for Jesus, and let them know that as they mature personally and as they mature in their faith, that you look forward to the day when they will be baptized, and that you believe that baptism will be even more significant, more meaningful, more memorable if they wait for a season and continue to grow into their understanding of the gospel and their love for Jesus. Now, um, if, if you ba- already have young children and they've been baptized before and you didn't practice this, that's not to, we're not going to say that that's illegitimate or we don't believe that was true or real. Um, I know there's those situations, but we're trying as a church to think through, okay, but moving forward, what, what's, what do we feel like is the best way to approach this, most healthy way to approach it that will be helpful for our children? Okay? So... That's a summary of the position paper that you'll be receiving uh, this evening as you go. And I uh, want to open up the floor to any questions, okay? Yes, Robbie. I'm sorry, Robbie. Let me, uh, let me get a mic here. You got it. It's being recorded. Excellent. So this isn't necessarily about children, uh, mm-hmm. but I am interested to know, you mentioned earlier that uh, you hear uh, when new members are coming uh, for confirmation or coming into the church that... Uh, they would mention they were baptized at the age of four or something like that. Mm -hmm. What is our church's or our elders, uh, I guess, uh, response to that if they then follow that up and say, you know, I 
I then didn't follow that up with fruits of repentance, and I lived a wild, you know, yeah. life and all that kind of stuff. Is that a suggestion or a recommendation at that point if they do, uh, you do feel strongly that they do believe mm-hmm. to ask them to be baptized? Yeah, that's an excellent question. So, let me just say one of the reasons I am, uh, one of the reasons I, I feel passionately about this as well is just even my own personal experience. So I grew up in a Christian home. My parents were faithful to share the gospel with me. I made a profession of faith when I was probably six. And uh, about the age of eight, um, they actually waited a couple of years because they wanted to really make sure I understood. And we have any number of conversations. I met with the pastor and talked to him and so forth. And then I was baptized. And uh, so beyond that, though, um, there was a season in my life that lasted for some time where I really questioned whether I understood the gospel, whether I was a Christian. It was, uh, then there was a decisive kind of break in my life in which the Lord changed and transformed my life. So actually, I've, you know, I've wrestled with this personally myself. Um, should I be baptized uh, in that sense? So, um, I mean, after, you know, this was years ago. So I think that it can, I think it can cause real confusion um, and I think a lot of people experience that. Uh, what we try to do, and, and what I try to do as I meet with folks in membership interviews that find themselves in that situation, is to say, well, do you believe when you, came, when you were baptized that you made a genuine profession of faith in Jesus? And if they say, and, and there are situations like this, well, yes, but then I had a number of years where I wasn't walking with the Lord, but I think I was, it wasn't that I was converted, but I, was, I came back to the Lord, or you know what I mean, that sort of thing. Um, then we say, okay, and we accept that, you know, like we honor that baptism. If someone though says very clearly, like, I just did, I know I didn't understand the gospel. Like there was no fruit. Like I just, then yes, at that point we would say, and, and we wouldn't use the language and I noticed you didn't either. And I think that's good. We wouldn't use the language like you need to be rebaptized or you need to be baptized, you know, again, that sort of thing. We would say, uh, you need to be baptized because in that sense, we would say that uh, according to the scriptures, a true baptism is upon profession of faith. So it's not that you're, you're being baptized again. You're being baptized as a believer for the first time. So that's how we approach it. Other questions? Yes, Drew. I think this perspective is very helpful. So this is just a very practical question. Yeah. If our children see somebody be baptized or if we're uh, taking the Lord's Supper and they're asking questions like, why can't we do that? Why aren't we doing this? I'm just interested to see how have y'all responded to that? What's a helpful way to even use that as an opportunity to talk to our kids without just trying to shut it down and be like, oh, that's for adults, you know? Um, So just curious how you'd respond to that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I think there's a number of things that can be done that are really helpful. I think those are great opportunities to talk about what baptism symbolizes, what the Lord's Supper symbolizes, that, you know, even as, you know, do you understand, buddy, that, you know, as, as the person's being baptized, that it's a symbol that their lives have been changed, that they've died to their old life, and now they're being raised, and they're walking in a new way, you know, because Jesus has changed them, and I want that for you. And, you know, has that happened in your life? Are you, you know, I'm praying that that would happen in your life. Um, 
And then to, I think in, in large part, like children understand this concept. I mean, there's so many things in life that we say to children like, look, you know, we, we want you to do this. It's going to be a wonderful thing for you. But given, your, given that you're a child, right, like we encourage you to wait because it's going to be better. It's going to be, you know, if you wait a while. And, uh, and I think we can talk to our children that way about baptism and the Lord's Supper. Like, um, I'm, I'm, you know, looking forward to the day that you're going to be baptized. And I want to, I want to uh, make sure that you really understand that and you continue to grow in your understanding of baptism. And as you continue to walk with Jesus and continue to learn more about him, then I think your baptism is going to be even more meaningful and significant. So, no. That's what I would suggest. Yes, Kathy. So uh, my question has to do more with after the fact of baptism. So let's with say what? You, I'm sorry. After baptism. Okay. So you have the kids like it's going to piggyback off of this guy's this last guy's question. But so let's say they're kind of like interested and like oh this guy went swimming in the water I want to do that too. Gets past that stage, but it's clearly something that's prompted by the Holy Spirit. They understand that like what baptism is, they clearly understand that who Jesus is, and it's, um, it's nothing that the parents are, um, what's the word? Uh, like forcing or pushing? Force, or? Forcing, or it's just not, they're not parroting, they're not parroting like a bird, you yeah. know, like they get mm-hmm. something that they understand themselves, and so the child is baptized because it's obviously, clearly something that they're, the kids are initiating, um, not because they watch something, it was like random, like they were in the car one day, and they're like, hey, mom, like, da-da-da-da-da-da. Mm-hmm. And so, but after that stage, let's say the kid, he's, he believes, um, but however, like, you know, kids, sometimes they're interested, sometimes they're not interested. But, like, we were in a group session, and we were doing communion that day. Mm-hmm. The, like, do you, do, they, do you force the kid to do communion, or just wait till they're interested in the next time when it's prompted? Like, kind of take the... Um, obedience tasks as the kid kind of and the Holy Spirit kind of just places that on the yeah, child's okay. heart. I don't know if that question makes sense. So it's not. a baptized child but they're not interested in taking communion? Yeah, essentially. Okay. But it's yeah. kind of just um, like do you just take it as stages or do you take it Yeah. Um, yes. how do you do it? Yeah. I mean I think that um, hopefully you know before the child is baptized parents and Others that are investing in their lives and discipling them would have opportunities to talk to them about the Lord's Supper. And now that you're going to become a member of the church, you're going to be taking the Lord's Supper, and they would have a good understanding of that. If not, then, um, and they don't have an interest in taking the Lord's Supper, then, you know, that might be a discipleship issue where you come alongside and, and talk to them about the significance of it and why it's important and so forth. Um, so I think, I think, you know, if you feel like you've, you've tried to be faithful to discern that profession of faith and you've been careful to do that and the child's professed faith and so forth. Um, and then there's a lack of interest or a lack of understanding or, or that sort of thing as it relates to the Lord's Supper. I would think that would be a discipleship issue that you'd want to come alongside them and try to, try to start talking to them about that. Yes. Okay, so this might be an irrelevant question, but yeah. if you're saying wait until a child is, you know, 12, 14, 18, whatever, mm-hmm. but then the actual act of baptism, so they, let's say they, you know, became a Christian at eight, now they're 16 and they're being baptized for eight years. Mm-hmm. They've walked with the Lord faithfully. 
And when you dunk them into the water, you bring them back up. And from what I can tell from the ones you've done, you say, now go and walk in newness of life. Mm -hmm. Why is that the phrase that you would say at that moment, knowing Mm -hmm. that that's actually what they've been doing for eight years? It Mm -hmm. seems like it's almost like at that moment, Mm -hmm. they're now going forward and walking in newness of life, not Mm -hmm. continue to walk in newness of life. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, I think it does. Yeah. I would, I would just say that um, with the baptism, I think it's a, it's a symbol of what's already happened in their lives. So we're not saying that like at the moment of baptism that, that that's when this is happening. As much as in baptism we're saying this is a symbol of what's already happened, whether that was yesterday or that was three or four years ago. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it just makes me wonder mm-hmm. then. Not trying to be argumentative. Yeah. How come then you don't just say, go forth and continue to walk in this? Maybe it's in, yeah. not sorry. Yeah, no, <laughs> yeah, I understand. Okay. Brandon? I'm going to piggyback off of her question because okay. we were talking back and forth here. Yeah. Um, say you have a child, you know, say he's almost eight, and, you know, he's had the discussion, we've had the discussion with him, he's talked with Don. Um, about a few things, and, you know, he professes to be a Christian, he professes to understand, he professes to be a believer, mm-hmm. um, hasn't been baptized, but should we wait and hold him from taking communion? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, he sees us doing it, and he's actually done it with us, and, mm-hmm. um, you know, are we wrong in that? Yeah. Uh, you know, we tried looking in the Bible to see if there was, you know, sure. certain steps to go through. Yeah. And, you know, even we even asked the question, were the disciples baptized before they took communion? I mean, mm-hmm. it doesn't really say anywhere, so I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, let me, I'll answer the first question, but on the issue of the disciples and whether they were baptized before, I do think we have to be careful about that because that was just a very unique, like, uh, time in salvation history. I don't think it was something that's, like, repeatable or... Uh, but, um, but I would say that, uh, l- let me first just say, there's not like a clear chapter verse on this, okay? So, I mean, it's not like we can go to Scripture and say, this is it, this is the way to do it. Um, but I do think it's wise to wait for the child to start taking communion for several reasons. As, as I mentioned before, I think, and I think this is right, that just as we think about, again, there's not a chapter and verse that says baptism, um, or actually, I may, I may need to walk that back. There may be. But th- there's, it's not super clear, like just a statement that like baptism comes before the Lord's Supper. But that is the logic. That is the, the rationale in the New Testament. So it's like, repent of your sins, believe in Jesus, and be baptized. Um, and so baptism is kind of that initiating rite. And then I, the Lord's Supper is, a, as I mentioned before, is a repeated affirmation of that. And I think, you know, just historically, broadly speaking, like the church has recognized that. I think also there's further implications in taking the Lord's Supper. So like if we discipline someone from the church, that's one of the things that we would say is that, you know, we ask that you no longer take the Lord's Supper. But if someone's not been baptized, um, they're not a member of the church, then it's kind of, 
you're not able to discipline. Like, um, so it's kind of taking the Lord's Supper without accountability in that sense. Um, so, I mean, th- those are some of the ways that I would, I would try to think through that. Again, we're, we're in a realm of, of trying to think through principles using wisdom and discernment. Um, so that, that, that's kind of the way that I would approach that. It's a good question. Yes, Stephen. So I grew up in a tradition as well that um, was very open to childhood conversion, childhood baptism, and kind of along with that was the idea that, that you would call children to a moment of prayer, prayer to receive Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but with the, the wisdom of maybe waiting a little bit longer on baptism, how does that translate to like the actual conversation with a child? Like what does it look like um, with a six or seven-year-old to call a child to faith and repentance mm-hmm. with the knowledge that you're, you're thinking about you know, a process that's going to be years of, yeah. of watching that develop. Yeah. I mean, I think in some ways the conversations can be, you know, in some ways the conversations are very similar to, I mean, in the sense that you want to talk to the child about sin, about their need for Christ. I mean, it's appropriate to ask, do you believe you've trusted in Christ? You know, um, do you want to, um, you know, if so, this, you know, you, you need to confess your sins and you can do that through prayer and, and uh, pray and ask Christ to save you and uh, trust in him that he's forgiven you of your sins by his death and resurrection on the cross. And, and you know, if a child says, I've done that, I think we do need to be careful not to just give like assurance, you know, like I think more we need to encourage that. That's wonderful. And we want you to continue to grow in this and we want to continue to teach you about what it means to follow Jesus. And, um, and as, as you grow in your understanding of Jesus and what it means to be a follower of Jesus, your life's going to change and there's just going to be more and more evidence of that. So I think we want to talk more in those terms and, and instead of maybe what some of us have experienced in the past where it's like, okay, we had this moment where you prayed this prayer. Now, you know, in, in, in some situations, you're a Christian and don't ever doubt that again. You know, I don't, I don't think that's the best way to do it, especially with a, a young child. Um, so I think, I think there needs to be more of an approach of like, okay, let's walk alongside. Let's continue in this journey and see where this leads. So, yeah, Anthony. So I don't know if this is going to overlap with that previous question, but are there things that you can help us with as far as distinguishing between principles from conversion and then maybe like things that are evidences of faith, but immature faith? Mm -hmm. So like I think in your presentation, you were bringing out things that are like, these are principles or evidences that we can see of conversion. But I think maybe in a lot of people's experiences, even with yours, because I share in yours where I was baptized previously, but then I had a moment later where I felt like I really believed or like my faith was really tested and I've had like a new like commitment or so like using that language to Christ. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now looking back, I saw it as a moment of Christian maturity um, and not so like, I don't know if I was a believer back then. And so are there things, would you use the same like principles that you're using in like this presentation and what you were saying with uh, Stephen as markers of distinguishing um, 
just conversion or is that also for like maturity? Like is there overlap in that or? I think there is. And I think the, one of the benefits of taking this approach is that it kind of takes the pressure off. So, I, you know, I think there's kind of like if, if, you're, if you're trying to discern that immediately upon like a child making an initial profession of faith, there's, there's kind of like a lot of pressure to like, um, you know, well, do like even those diagnostic questions that I was asking before, you know, like, well, do I see all these things, you know? And um, in some ways it takes the pressure off the child and off you to say, this is wonderful that this has happened, you know, that you have an interest in Jesus. That's a wonderful thing. Let's just walk in this, you know? And then you have like, in some ways you have a body of, of evidence as well, like as just over the months, the years, to say, these are things I've seen. And of course, children are going to struggle and they're going to have ups and downs and so forth. But you begin to see a trend. You begin to see, um, you know, where their heart is. And of course, you know, living with a child all the time, I mean, you're going to be, you're going to be observing that and getting a better read on that. We probably have time for maybe one more question. These have been great questions. Is there one more question? I have the mic, so I'm going to ask. Okay. <laughs> Okay, so we've discussed all tonight around parents that mm-hmm. we're assuming that we have believing parents in the mix. Yeah. What about children that don't have believing parents or parents at all? Yeah. Um, and we're friends with these children. How should, I mean, it's probably a really big question. It is a big question. Yeah, no, that's a great question. Actually, we address it in the uh, position paper y'all be receiving as you walk out, but in short, I think, and we could, we could talk about this and it would be very worthy conversation for a long time. But in short, I think that we still want to honor, like if a child that uh, shows interest and in, say their parents are in the neighborhood, but they don't attend the church, we still want to honor, I think, that role of parent. And I think it can be a great evangelistic opportunity. So I think it's, it's a good opportunity to go to the parents and say, hey, this, these are some of the things we've been talking about at church. And this is, you know, your child has shown an interest and is saying that they're trusting in Christ and so forth. And we'd like to talk to you about that. Um, Depending on whether they're Christian or not, I mean, we can encourage them. They may go to another church or whatever, I don't know. But we could encourage them to, you know, come alongside the child. That's probably not the situation. They're probably not in a church and that sort of thing. I think at that point, if they themselves don't come to faith in Christ, then we do have to take on more the responsibility of the role of the parent in that situation in terms of trying to guide that child spiritually. And I think that just involves us continuing to disciple that child through uh, Crawford Kids and other experiences here at the church and continuing to you know, touch, hopefully there'll be people within the children's ministry that can intentionally like um, check in with them periodically. You know, how are you doing? What are you learning? You know, are you growing? Are you, you know, and having that conversation over the years until we feel like it's a point where they've, they've reached a point of maturity where it's appropriate to baptize them. Okay, good. Thanks, y'all. Um, I hope this is a helpful discussion and we're happy to talk more about these things. It, it may have stirred up a lot of questions and thoughts in your own mind and heart. I know people are in all kinds of different places. This may be totally new to you or it may be something that you've heard for years. Uh, and so I want to be sensitive to that and uh, am happy to answer any questions and that sort of thing. And again, this is a process and something that we're all learning and growing in and uh, we want to be faithful to the Lord and to our children, okay? So let's go to the Lord in prayer, okay?
Father, we thank you and praise you for your grace. Lord, help us tonight. Give us discernment as we think carefully about these things uh, tonight and in the days to come. We thank you so much for the children that you've uh, blessed our church with. We pray for every single one of them that they would come to faith in Christ, that they would trust in Jesus and follow him all the days of their lives. And uh, we pray that we would be faithful to disciple them and shepherd them as they do. And it's through Christ we pray. Amen. Thanks, y'all. Have a good night.